The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. You know the drill, it's me, it's Chris, it's Anthony. We're talking about the best films of last year. Here we go. Anyway, Blade Runner. The movie's filled with all these literary references to Nabokov and Kafka, and none of it seems to relate to anything or mean anything. And Ryan Gosling's performance, it's, it's just like a blank. Mm-hmm. In Drive, you got a sense that there was something underneath the cool exterior, but he... But here you just think, well, it's it's just nothing. He's just he's just a robot, and he's supposed to be more than that because that's the point of the movie. This is the, the second film of last year that, or at least the, the first for the Last Jedi that abandons the standard hero quest and does and, and announces that from the, the rooftops to tell a not very interesting story. Um, it's way too long. This film. It's ridiculous. It's ab- stupidly long. Film. It's like two and th- is it two and three quarter hours? It is. Yeah. And the, the yeah. original cut, I found this out, was um, four hours long. Oh. So um, you're quite right. There's too much faffing about. There's not enough story. There's no discipline. There's, there is absolutely no discipline. It's, it's all, it's all um, very moody. I have a theory about this film, um, and that is the wrong person is directing it. Um, Ridley Scott, as you mentioned, comes from the rain-swept moors of South Yorkshire. And you can imagine him looking at some of those industrial uh, cities um, uh, around England back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, and coming up with that vision of uh, right at the start of Blade Runner of the, the city gone mad. Dennis Villeneuve is a far sunnier character. And um, this 2049 ends on a much more optimistic note than um, the original Blade Runner. Um, because the last thing in the original Blade Runner was it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Which is really not not a great sign-off. Um, Jared Leto should be completely cut from this film. The whole thing. Um, he brings nothing to it. Um, at the end where the female, um, who's actually quite good, the female uh, employee of Jared Leto, she could just say, I'm going to take you to see my boss now, when they're, they're flying off with Harrison Ford and then it crashes. You don't need all this rubbish about him, Jared Leto being um, a, a Russell Brand Jesus figure um, in lots of moody strip lighting. Um, but of course they wanted to do a Tyrell rip-off. Yeah. Um, I think the only really... Um, I don't. I don't really want to say good because the soundtrack isn't as good as the original. The original is an iconic soundtrack, but I am listening to the soundtrack of Twenty Forty Nine going into work for my new computer contract every day, and that helps to be plugged into the um, a nice, a nice sort of ambient techno um, synthy score. Um, but I agree with you. I think it, it. The overriding thing is, it is just even Ridley Scott said it's just way too long. And I must, I must say, I know it sounds self-aggrandizing. I pointed this all out when Arrival came along. Everyone said Arrival, brilliant, new, new uh, voice in science fiction. 
Um, great film. No, it was a short story blown up to, to way too long. It was incredibly badly lit. It was put some horrible contrasting put onto the colour colour correction put on to make it all look like God had stubbed a cheroot out in the atmosphere. And if you'd seen Torch with Children of Earth, you've seen Arrival. Um, and then, of course, he goes and does Blade Runner. And then now he's going to inflict um, two films worth of Dune on us. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, just not done. I just think, um, really disappointed. The only plus point from the experience of going to see that at the cinema was that my brother couldn't make it. And my brother would have... Um, Shit the bed. He would have gone, thanks for dragging me along to that. That's, <laughs> I'm going to get you back for that. I was asked by members of my family not to post spoilers about it online because we're from a Blade Runner family, apparently. Um, I'm in the middle of you two. I don't, I don't think it's... Um, uh, uh, an, an unbeatable masterpiece but I, I think I, I regard the film more than you do yes. I wouldn't say it's an unbeatable masterpiece but I think that it it's a film that never seems to get tired I've seen it and I've got the box set with all the five different books I must have seen it about ten times by now But and it never seems to feel run out or dated or anything like that because it's Raymond Chandler in the future mm. basically Blade Runner and the big the, the elephant in the room about this film is that it's it's a really badly essentially people overestimated the public thirst for another Blade Runner film. Oh yeah. And Blade Runner is is a big cineast um, uh, uh, film favorite, but with the general public, um, what's the attraction of Blade Runner? Okay, it's got a, a past is prime Harrison Ford in it. Um, they don't really recognize anybody else in this film. Um, it's way too long. Um, and it's not about not very much. Well, I... And the CGI Rachel is a... Oh. I would say they probably would know who Ryan Gosling is. Are you in sure? Are you really sure about that? I think so. What I was the last blockbuster hit he was in? La La Land. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right, yes, conceded, but... He's not He's not like an A-list blockbuster no, star. No, he's not. But he's a, he's a big name. In the US, he's a big name at least. I think he's um, a pretty boy. But he can't open a movie. No. And he certainly did Which is fine. It's, it's fine that he can't. But it was a mistake to assume, oh, there's going to be, all the, all the Blade Runner fans are going to be queuing around the block. No, they're not. And this thing needed to do Star Wars money to, to break even because it's, what, 150 million or something yeah. stupid like that? It doesn't need to do quite Star Wars money, but it needed to, to, to do, do more. a lot better than it did. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one giant misfire. It, I completely and it, agree. And we didn't need it. All those years we've wanted a Blade Runner 2, and well, here you are, and it's shit. It's a technically proficient film. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not blatantly incompetent the way that something like Justice League is, where you just think a schoolboy put this together. Well, yeah, but, I so. um, but I just think, the, yeah, uh, as you say, I think it probably is um, a triumph of enthusiasm over... Um, common sense. Common sense, exactly. Well, having put that to bed... <laughs> I mean, I was worried that you were going to go on for another hour, to be honest. I, I, I would like to, but I'm not going to. Um, number three, and it's actually one that you've seen, uh, third best film of the year is I, Tonya. Right. Chris, have you seen I, Tonya? I haven't. Surprising. <laughs> did, did, I could just, I've just realised that probably for next year I would just put a parrot here and train. You know, <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't. But... Um, 
There's one more film. I remember. I actually remember the original events. Yeah. It didn't get a great deal. It was a vague kind of low-level scandal because it was more than a. She was obviously she was the big um, American hope in the figure skating championship, and it got a bit of traction in the news in the UK. But I don't remember it ever being a huge yeah, story. I, I was only very vaguely. I thought there was some kerfuffle, yeah. and that's about it. That was kind of it. It was kind of those crazy Americans are at it again. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, again, I I was sort of aware of the story. I wasn't aware of the detail. I wasn't aware of Tanya Harding's background, mm. which is such a huge part of the story. The fact that she's basically hillbilly white trash, but she's also a great figure skater. She has this monstrous stage mother who, if anything, seems to tone down a bit for the movie. Um... The whole the fur coat with the little bird sitting on her shoulder, that was real. Um, but the story of this woman who is bred to be incredibly competitive, to be her own person and bollocks <clears throat> to anyone else, who falls in with this crowd of idiot misfits. Now, are you talking about Molly's game or are you talking about I, Tonya? I'm talking about the movie that I actually saw. Because um, I think actually they're quite similar, but I Tonya, which has problems, it's got some really weird tonal shifts, but it's a very similar story to Molly's Game. It's just about Molly's Game is about poker, and I Tonya is about figure skating. But is there an equivalent to the the incident? No, I wouldn't so say. So they're not that similar then. No, maybe not. And uh, I Tonya is is very much in the debt of Martin Scorsese. It's very yeah, Scorsese yeah, yeah, style yeah, yeah. movie. Yeah. Do you did you find it an easy watch? Yes. Really? Yes. It's an incredible litany of abuse. Well, I was watching it at the the back half of a double bill with The Shape of Water, so it felt like like light relief. (laughs) Yeah. I did find it very difficult to watch, and there's a a particular moment in it where it changes um, tone, because at the start, where they're doing vox pops of her family members and... Uh, and, and there's some fun characters that introduce, and of course, from the start, Alison Janney is is given a, a a juicy role to play. I wouldn't necessarily say it's um, an Oscar-winning role, but I think that's the Oscars for you. Um, but then the first punch gets thrown, and from that moment on, it doesn't let up. And I found that really difficult to watch. I was uh, I was not predisposed to liking Margot Robbie after Suicide Squad. That's the only thing I'd seen her in prior to um, to this film. Um, I thought she did a better acting job in this, but this film is very meta. There's, like Molly's Game, there's a lot of narration of things that you then see on the screen. Um, so, for example, Tonya will say, my mother dragged me into school wearing the figure skating costume, and you will see that as it's being described on the soundtrack. Um, so there is, an, and also the bits where there's a bit where Tonya fires a gun at her. Um, she, yeah, she fires a shotgun at, shotgun then, at her and chases her around the house, and yeah. then turns to the camera and says, "This didn't actually happen." Exactly. So there's a there's a whole meta thing around this, and that's very fun right at the start. But I found it much more difficult to take that when suddenly um, uh, her mother throws a knife at her. Um, her husband punches her straight in the face. I just thought, oh, this is really difficult to watch. But it's. It's aware of the context, though. It's aware that that Tonya is from an environment where abuse has almost become normalised. So the connection then to um, one of her friends bashing in the knee of her opponent, she doesn't seem as concerned about that as yeah. a person who doesn't come that kind of... She's concerned because it will affect 
her ability to compete. So it's the normalisation of that sort of thing from her background that, that is responsible for her reaction to all of that. Yeah. Um, Even though, I mean, the, when uh, the, scene, the scene where her mother just throws a knife at her and hits her in the arm, mm. the audience was, it was shocked laughter because yeah. we really mm. weren't expecting that to happen. Yeah. And it's pretty funny. But if you think about it, you think, oh my God, that's, like, that's horrible. What, a, what the hell is this? Mm. And Alison Jenny is terrifying. Absolutely. And it's, that's, that's really the only moment of real physical action mm. that she offers. The rest of the time, it's just belittling and... And there's a lot of emotional abuse going on. So, so her mother will, will, will tell her that she's trash, she sh- you shouldn't be going out with this guy and all of this. Uh, Tonya will get up and go to walk out and her mother will say, don't I get a kiss? And Tonya will then kiss her mother and her mother will just kind of pull away. It's all those mind games that there's playing. It's a really, um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a relationship of dependency and it's toxic dependency between the two of them. I think that performance that Alison Jenny gives, it's a very um, grandstanding performance and it's quite a meaty role to play. Um, but she's big friends with the director and I sense that there's uh, the director's really gone for it with that character and said, I'm going to give you... Uh, something to really get your teeth into and it's just in my opinion it's just one notch too uh, cartoony a little bit too much of a caricature Um, because she's horrible right from the start Um, and we're meant to we're meant to take her as some sort of great wisecracking particularly when she's talking to the camera Um, and again I found that quite difficult but having watched Molly's game where I hated everybody and there was nobody I, I had any feeling for um, and it was all about horrible rich types uh, and, and lawsuits and Aaron Sorkin doing his usual verbal tics to watch I, Tonya, it was very bracing. What do you think of uh, Tonya as a character? Did you Because she had the potential to just be a victim and one that had been caught in the cycle of it, but she felt too self-possessed, I felt. Mm. She seemed much later on very much in control and... Well, that's the problem with modern films, particularly in this last year. You're not really allowed to show a passive, vulnerable female. So in Molly's game, right from the start, from her childhood, she's saying, uh, marriage is for suckers, I don't trust anybody, I don't have any heroes, the only person I believe in is, is in myself. That's her on camera, interviewed by Kevin Costner right at the start. And in I, Tonya, um, Tonya is, I'm not getting off the ice, right from the word go, and I'm going to do what I do. But she's tethered, she can't get away from her mother, and when she balls us up the uh, um, the triple jump, the triple axle, the triple axle, and ends right back in serving fries, and only gets the second chance when her um, the Olympics are brought two years forward. Um, that's her only way out. Um, so I think she just seems to be much more. I mean, because she's based on a real person. Well, actually, Molly Molly Bloom, of course, is a real person, but um, I bought her more. I thought. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how accurate the portrayal is. I bought her more as a real person. Molly Bloom, Ch- Jessica Chastain, Ice Ice Cube. Just no way, mm. no way. And I don't care if she's been sued into oblivion. Um, uh, you know, she threw away everything. I don't care about pop psychology. Um, but in Itonia, completely different. It does everything right that Aaron Sorkin did wrong. So there. And that's why you should go and see it, Chris. <laughs> Although, watch out, because it is very abuse-heavy. Well, this was the thing that... Because on the one hand, I'd heard people going, it's very, very funny. And then you hear this... And you think, 
this doesn't necessarily sound like yeah you know, a good candidate for a combo. I think it, it it keeps a very fine balance. Right. It's aware of how horrible these things are, but there is a but there is a degree of gallows humour, uh, like like the like the knife throwing, like a lot of the dialogue. Which but is, her husband just flips immediately from "I'll cook you uh, uh, breakfast" and you know, "I'll take you to the training," and if if she pisses him off slightly, he literally punches her straight in the face and then rams her head into the wall. And that's on the screen, this completely depicted. That's a real massive tonal shift. First 15 minutes of the film, I was going, I was euphoric. I thought this is brilliant, a brilliant, funny, interesting characters. And then people start getting hit. And mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, I know, I know it's probably being... Sorry. That, that may be the, uh, that audience modulation, I guess. Let's lure you in with this and then we're going to show yeah. the characters actually being horribly hurt. Because you think you're safe, and it's going to have so much more impact than if it happens right at the start, and you know exactly what kind of film. Yeah, I would have switched off if that had happened at the start. But it's directed by Craig Gillespie, who last year did Zed Zachariah with Margot Robbie. That I mean, that was a film that barely registered on any. It went straight to Netflix over here. Oh, is it on? Okay. I don't think it's on there anymore, though. Ah. Um, Is Chewie uh, Chewetel Ejiofor? Is he in it? Zed Zachariah and Chris Pine. <laughs> we've gone through this before about how yeah. we knew we, there's something funny about this movie when we discovered that there were three characters in it because there's yeah. only two in the book yeah. um, the first half of it is a very faithful adaptation of the book although the lead character is aged up a bit right. he's now an adult and then the second half is totally different but it succeeds as its own story so I'd recommend that as well Okay. Um, but it's not quite the third best film of, these, of this year at number two Colossal. Oh, God. Um, uh, Anna Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway, yes. Um, with a, a, a drink problem and apparently a monster, Godzilla, on the rampage. That's about as much as I know about Colossal. Um, she's kind of a freeloader who uh, has been kicked out by her boyfriend, moves back to the family home, which is empty and gets a job working in a bar, and is just spending her time hanging around with her old mates, getting drunk, stumbling home at dawn. While at the same time a giant monster is regularly appearing in South Korea and, and trampling up the place. And it turns out that these two things are connected. <laughs> okay. Um, I thought it was fantastic. It's, again, it's a, a film that's both very funny and also has... That's your second best film of last year? Yeah. Wow. Um... It ha- has elements about abuse, and mm-hmm. it's the film is ultimately about um, the controlling influence of others, because mm-hmm. the the old friend from school who she makes friends with again and who runs the bar that uh, where she gets a job, played by Jason Sudeikis, he gradually reveals his true colours over the course of the film. That he's he's one of those in inverted commas nice guys mm-hmm. that he feels he's he's bought her affection by being nice to her by giving her a job by getting hold of some furniture for the house and that colours what the rest of the film turns out to depict and it even manages to come up with an, an appropriate and not plausible but satisfying explanation as to why it is that there is a giant monster running around in South Korea apparently controlled by a drunk woman stumbling around a playground at dawn Yes, I'm, I have to confess. I want to know what the monster action is yeah, like. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind. It's it's. Is it better than the monster action in Godzilla? 
No, it's kind of, I mean, it's a low-budget film that's kind of played down a bit. Okay. Um, they do, I think, towards the end, they do actually shoot on location in Seoul. Hmm? Um, it looked like South Korea. Um, but I thought it was a, a really brilliant one-off film. It's such a crazy idea. There's no way this could possibly work, and yet it does because it's really engaged in the characters. It's really engaged in the lives of these people as the lead character evolves from just being a total waste of space to someone trying to just do the right thing, trying to lead a better life, like clear up her act, not hang around drinking all the time, make more of an effort with her life. But these negative influences, these negative people trying to pull her down back to their level Wow, this sounds like it's quite a personal film for someone. Well, it's directed by Nacho Vigalondo, who is a Spanish filmmaker who previously did Time Crimes. Oh, I saw that. I liked that. That's a very good movie. Have so mm. you seen that? Case? I haven't. It's one of these films that I made a half-hearted effort to track it down on the basis that everybody kept saying how good it was, but so far I obviously haven't been looking hard enough. It's maybe the cheapest time travel... No, it's not the cheapest time travel film I've seen. That's Primer. Primer, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. made from a budget of pence. But, um, Actually, what about Coherence? Um, I haven't seen it, and I don't think that's a time travel film. Mm, I think it's more of a parallel universe yeah. film, actually, yeah. But um, Vigalando has sort of clearly a very unique artistic style and sensibility. And what I really loved is that um, Anne Hathaway was inspired to find a really unusual, interesting genre-type story to do, because her pal, Jonathan Demi, took her to see Ben Wheatley's A Field in England. Oh, cool. And she thought it was fantastic. So, I want to do a movie like this. This is great. <laughs> and the first thing that she came across like that was colossal. That film's got one of the most frightening moments in modern, modern cinema. I know. Yeah. Shearsmith Coming out of the tent. tent. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I was, I'm really that Anne Hathaway really wants to make weird genre pictures. But uh, come on, that's just not... What about Jennifer Lawrence and, and Scarlett Johansson and... and uh, uh, do, you know, heading for uh, what used to be arty niche projects, but then getting them to have big budgets. And... I wouldn't say that Under the Skin had a particularly big budget. Well, no, but uh, that would that would be. Uh, it's still got a cinema release. It's still got uh, uh, massive cinema visuals in it, and uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily Anne Hathaway. It's just going for the interesting arty genre. I think projects. that it helped. The, the film, I think, might have had difficulty getting financing if it didn't have Oscar winners. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So the fact that she's going out of her way to find like a, a small project that she can help get off the ground very true. is very yeah. positive. Yeah. Um, I'm fairly pro Anne Hathaway. I, I thought she was absolutely terrific in the film. It's, it's so... Like, I don't, no, it's like not, not that she's sort of playing sort of like... Charlie's Theron and monster type. Mm. I mean, she's she looks like herself, but very dowdy, very sort of. She looks like she could do with a bath, that kind of thing, and just feels like a, a, a real person who's suddenly caught in this incredibly weird situation, but which also has more realistic impact on her. Excellent. I thought it was a really terrific film. So, worst film of the year. And I think this is one that only I've seen. Mm. Um, the worst and best films of the year actually form a really nice, neat, matched pair. Um, and uh, the worst one is uh, Darkest Hour. Oh, okay. 
Um, Which makes me instantly know what you're going to have. Yes, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. spoilers. It's that <laughs> um, I, um, I mentioned uh, at my workplace that I'd seen this and uh, a colleague asked me what I thought of it and the phrase I used, which I stand by now, is Brexit wank fantasy. Mm. <laughs> it's a historical fantasy about... We are talking about Darkest Hour, by Darkest the way. Hour, Not yeah, Dunkirk. Not Dunkirk. <laughs> okay, no Dunkirk. We'll get on to that. <laughs> um, it's a fantasy based around the perception of Churchill as this great heroic leader figure. But it's, it's painted in such a ludicrous fashion. All the villains, the people who oppose Churchill, they all have speech impediments. Really? Yeah. It's like I was expecting the king to have a dueling scar. It's so absurd. Um, there are scenes that are flat-out inventions in a way that are so absurd. There's a scene where Churchill goes on the tube to get the measure of public opinion. Yeah, I've and he has And he has a nice chat with people, including a mixed-race couple, which no one mentions, mm. and which he uh, gives his unspoken um, blessing to, even though Churchill was a notorious racist... Um, the mixed race couple is it? It's a black it, guy and a white woman. No, but I meant sorry. Was it? Is the guy American? Is he a GI or something? Or there would be two other well, GIs. He speaks but... with an English accent. Okay. So the assumption is, I imagine that he's the, the son of maybe Caribbean immigrants, perhaps. Maybe with the I best mean, will in the world, that's unlikely. In nineteen, it's it's possible. I suppose. I mean, that's, no, no the, thing word. Is, the thing that I have a problem with is. There would not be any mixed race couples out in public no. in 1940. No, I, I, I find that very, well. I find it hard to believe like Churchill um, topping up his oyster cart and taking a trip on the central well, line. Yeah, he no. never went on the tube at all. That's a complete, a complete fabrication. The scripts by Anthony McCartan, who also wrote uh, *The Theory of Everything*, which was also shit. Mm. Oh, is um, that the Stephen, that was a Stephen Hawking film, which was just a complete joke? Um, and, yeah, he seems to have cornered the market in writing terrible biopics of um, notable British people. Gary Oldman's performance is nothing more than a caricature. All the, the prosthetics are doing all the heavy work, and he's just he's vaguely doing the voice. It's okay if, if you're playing a, a historical figure and you don't look just like them. That's fine, but you have to convey a sense of the person. And here, Churchill is just like a total flat sheet of paper. He... He has no substance to him. He has no depth to him. He's the person who made all those speeches. There's a scene towards the end where he delivers the whole we will fight them on the mm. beaches thing and the, the, the film seems to be more interested in all the speeches rather than the actions and the consequences. And I noticed that they also left bits out. Um, and I thought, you know, seeing Churchill in inverted commas delivering this speech here, it means far less than in Dunkirk when it was a regular guy reading it out of the newspaper. Well, in, in uh, contrast to that, and I haven't seen uh, Darkest Hour, um, um, I, my parents have, and sent me an email saying they thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and on Dar- Darkest Hour is, is um, uh, posters everywhere with laudatory quotes all over it, and I wonder whether this is playing better with an older age group. I imagine it might be, but... I, th- I mean a much older I, age group. I really do think that it, it isn't maybe in that sense it's pandering to... Uh-huh. Is it just like the King's Speech? Is it kind of heritage Britain? I like think there's a lot I, of that oh, going on yeah. there. Yeah. The King's Speech I quite liked. I thought that was a, a well-made, interesting film. This is just... It's a disgrace. And Joe Wright is a terrible director. His films are all awful. Oh, it's a Joe Wright film. Ah. Yeah, your voice couldn't... 
drip with any yeah atonement atonement was awful where he does a dunkirk scene and he goes look at my yeah and it's all it's so showy yes it is look at all the stuff i can do he does a one take uh a a camera shot around um and it goes on for about 20 years Yes, yeah, uh, like, it is like five minutes though. Yeah, it's it's and yes, it's technically uh, accomplished because you've got the the camera on a train track or something stuff yeah. like that. Um, but I, I have so many problems with that film anyway. And and uh, anyway, um, I I don't particularly want to go and see Darkest Hour. Also, did um, Gary Oldman win the Oscar for this? Yeah, yeah. So is this another instance of Brian Cox playing a part? which then another actor wins an Oscar for. Can you think of a third example? Of <laughs> I imagine there might well yeah, be I bet, one. I'm sure Brian Cox is getting really annoyed. Um, I'm going to research that. I'm sure there is. I'm sure maybe like um, Daniel Day-Lewis played Daphne's dad in an episode of Frasier or something. <laughs> it's all the idea of uh, Britain against the world. Oh, the rest of the world's fallen. Only Britain can stand against this terrifying horde and America's turned its back on us and all this kind of thing. I thought... This is just playing into the worst instincts people have. This is, this is, if this is deliberate, this is reprehensible. But I suspect I'm, I would say the same from my point of view. I'd say the same things about Dunkirk, mm. um, because that rubbed me right up the wrong way. And but I, and I understand why or how you could read Dunkirk that way. But with that, I think that it's because of ambiguities in the way the story mm. is told. In Darkest Hour, I think it's deliberate. Yeah, yeah. I think that you're right that this is pandering to... This is the veneration of, of Churchill. Yeah. And um, uh, and I'm, I'm not happy to hear that thing about the underground as well. I think that sounds really, really dubious. And, and pandering to the sensibilities of the demographic this film is trying oh, to appeal yeah. to. Well, it, again, it, it plays into the heritage uh, view of Churchill, doesn't it? As the great man of the people and... He wasn't. He wasn't. His premiership in the 50s was a disaster. My, my nan, when Churchill died, apparently virtually had to be restrained from going to London and dancing on his coffin. She, <laughs> my nan hated Churchill, wow. but it was because of the pre-Second World War stuff. It was because of the... Was it Tara Pandy, the ordering troops to fire at striking miners? There's assorted mm. other stuff to do with... Inventing concentration camps. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of. Uh, I think the siege of Sydney Street was another. Uh, uh, Gallipoli was that him as well? I think Invading so. yes, Europe yes. via the soft underbelly. It was all those kinds of things. And so the fact that he had, you know, done very, very, you know, the fact that in the course of the Second World War he was the right person at the right time. She acknowledged that, but she hated him for everything else. I, I think I use that exact same phrase when talking about the film with my mother. That you know he he was the right man at the right time. Cometh the, cometh mm. the man, cometh the hour, just like Captain Mannering. And you know when you watch Dad's Army, you get a sense that Captain Mannering is a deeply flawed man, mm. but also somehow an inspiring leader. And the level of nuance you get in an episode of Dad's Army. Is more than you get oh, in Darkest Hour. Yeah, Joe Wright is is definitely coming across as as um, Hackmeister General. Um, uh, He's made. Um, I, I saw Hannah recently. Mm. He keeps. He keeps. I mean, God, I mean, we'll go, I mean, we might talk about Saoirse Ronan later, and how she really needs to fire her agent because she's a great actress who has never been in a good film. Mm. Um, but Hannah is terrible, and he doesn't know how. I mean, Hannah is. He's basically trying to imitate Danny Boyle. It's a Danny Boyle knockoff. Yes. And it's not a very good one because it's so 
badly written and so badly thought out. He did that Peter Pan... Not the Hugh Jackman thing. Yeah. That was him? That was him, yeah. Oh, was, my God. That was his big blockbuster, which was a huge disaster. That was disaster. neutron bomb, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I am I'm not, in, in, in the era that we're living in, I'm not going to the cinema to, to see uh, a film like Darkest Hour, I'm afraid. I don't want to go into some flag-waving, um, e- even if it's harking back to some apparent great uh, English idyll that, um, that the Brexit lot clearly want to go back to. The Operation Golden Age. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and Christ, there are enough dinosaurs roaming the landscape at the moment. So uh, I, I'm not going to be seeing Dark Stay. I, for a long time, it was not on my list of films to see, but then it started picking up all these award nominations. And I thought, God, I'm going to have to go and see this. So I, I was really sort of dragging my heels to go into the cinema, and I thought, Oh yeah, it is exactly as awful as I thought it was going to be. Mm. Another. Prediction I got exactly right, as usual. Um, <laughs> but um, that leads us on to Dunkirk, which is the best film of the year, and you're not allowed to argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think it's, I think Dunkirk is a masterpiece. I think it's everything Christopher Nolan has done. You can see elements of all his previous films, like all the, the ideas about manipulating time in terms of the storytelling the ensemble casts, the... I so enjoy this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> The control of a tone and use of music as a mixture of atmospherics and sound effects as well as underscore. To tell the story of an event through the eyes of the people who were, it, who were there, not through the generals, not through the politicians, but the eyes of the actual soldiers. Even though the, the, Harry Styles. Even though the individual stories are uh, fictional, they don't talk smack about Harry Styles. I thought he was very good. Um, the fact that the main character is referred to as Tommy. He's, he is the average soldier. He's the, the ordinary man through whom we see everything. We see the story sitting next to him uh, or on the beach or on the boat or in the plane. We're seeing it from the eyes of the people who are there. And that's what I think makes it so successful is it puts you into that environment. It makes you experience it along with the participants, you feel the story as it goes. I've heard complaints from people about the lack of character development, how there's very little background given to the characters. But that's not the point. The point is that the film is putting you into the movie there as well. You're supposed to be experiencing it too. You are a character in the film along with them. I thought this is a a fantastic supernatural tale of of a cursed soldier who sinks three out of the four boats that he tries to get on. And then on the train back home, he reads out Churchill's speech and Churchill then gets kicked out of office. Um, so Stephen King's greatest film. Um, I thought the fact that he was called Tommy was really on the nose. Um, and I thought of all the tales you could have told about Dunkirk, um, you clearly read every book, but you picked on these three. Um, so I wasn't impressed with the, the, the technicality of the, te- the technical size of it or the... Um, I found all that very showy. And as I've said before, and, and uh, I think really unfortunately timed film, um, it's the sort of film that Nigel Farage, Katie Hopkins, uh, Clarkson, Boris would be raving about from the, the rooftops, which instantly makes me uh, ill-disposed towards it. Um, and also I just found it plain boring. Um, Really? Yeah. There's a 
there's one moment in it which is um, where uh, Kenneth Branagh sees the boats approaching across the channel, and um, and then the uh, is it? Um, Algar's Nimrod. Yeah, Nimrod starts kicking in, and um, and and apart from draping someone in a British flag. Um, when it certainly wasn't only British people on, on that beach, and in fact, Branner references that um, at the end. Um, I thought, well, how, how much more of the last night, the proms, can you possibly fit into a short space of time? I thought it's known as worst film, so that. Have you seen Following? No, I haven't seen Following. You okay, seen <laughs> <laughs> I've seen everything apart from Following. I've, I've given Following a yeah. pass in the past. So Insomnia is much better, much better thriller, much more controlled. Um, Memento is. It's not original, it's him trying to... Memento is Nolan trying to take the weird plot structure of Pulp Fiction but give it a a narrative reason. So you've got a guy with short-term memory loss, so his story's skipping about. Following is um, a very straightforward noir story, but it also has a non-linear narrative. But there is no reason for the non-linear narrative. And I've given it a pass in the past, I'll continue to give it a pass, because it was made as an amateur movie, they'd shoot on Saturdays, everyone had day jobs... The movie cost like £7,000. thought, yeah, that was your practice. That, that's fine. It, Memento was your first proper film, and that's... I'm not crazy about Memento, but it's... It looks like a real movie. It looks like it's, it looks like it's been made by someone who's made movies before. Yeah. I mean, he... When um, Inception came out, I was a huge Nolan fanboy. I thought, this is brilliant. We have an artist who's um, producing a huge piece of cake um, for the horrible dread times that we're living in and it's a complete confection and it works wonderfully and a wonderful um, cinematic experience and but with Dunkirk it really does seem like a very obvious um, push for uh, legitimacy and um, Oscar baiting which he failed. I really don't think that it's Oscar bait it's too odd in in the way it's structured and the fact that it's so, much, so many of the cast are effective unknowns. The, lead, the leads are all unknowns. It's, it's, has I this felt e- for nobody. I, I, I cared about nobody. Um, yeah, but you're dead inside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wanted the uh, conventional uh, narrative. I, I, when it started and it was silent movie time, I thought, brilliant, he's going to basically do um, no dialogue. And then, unfortunately, people started talking. Um, and all you're doing is you're looking at the spectacle of it. So it's it's people getting blown to smithereens. And, um, and the other, I mean, the opening, I think the opening's brilliant. Mm. And the, the whole sequence of the guy walking through Dunkirk with the propaganda falling from the skies yes. is an image that's very, very strong. And I, I, I thought the rest of the film struggled to live up to the opening. Mm. I also think his insistence on shooting it without CGI... Yes, hurt, that hurt, the hurt the scale of the film in places. The the sequence where the um and it was a film a, another film I ended up watching with my parents actually, and they were surprised when the convoy of little ships turn up and their reaction was is that it yes because there aren't there's there's like twenty or something if that and it's not enough and equally some shots of the beach don't convey the scale of the whole operation. I remember reading, and this is quite a long time ago, I was reading a book about Dunkirk, and one of the things that the soldiers talked about was that the beach itself was so long that they would be shelling one end, and you would see the shells go, you would see these explosions, but you wouldn't hear anything. 
and again the insistence on filming it all practically and all real. Yeah. I think it un under it actually underscales the film, and in the end, I think potentially it doesn't hurt it because it's still a very very spectacular film, and certainly some of the sort of dogfighting sequences with the Spitfires and things look look fantastic. Um, and also, I do think I, I I ended up seeing it twice. And on both occasions, the people I saw it with didn't understand the time structure of the film. They didn't understand why one minute it's day, one minute it's night, and then suddenly they see a person who they're subsequently introduced to later. And I, it's good, I, but it's not perfect. The, my, my response to that is, yeah, I know, probably should be paying attention. That was kind of my feeling as well. But I mean, I, I, when I sat there and watched it with my mum... I watched it with my mum. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. Um, the there's a sequence where they're on the beach and he sees a stretcher and he goes and picks up the stretcher and my mum goes, "Is he helping or is he just using this as a way to get to the front of the queue?" And it's like, mm. "You decide." Yeah, it's, it's kind of both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my reaction when I saw him do that was sensible, man. <laughs> um, but you know, well, my my response was. There are probably stretcher bearers who are supposed to be doing that, but I can see why he's doing mm, that. No, get off the beach. But, but, that, but that's, the, that's the thing that you, you can see why the characters are doing that, even yes. if it's reprehensible, even towards the end when they, they want to throw the French soldier out of the boat. It was the sequence... I, you understand why, even if it's a terrible thing that they're trying to do. It was the sequence, and again, I kind of felt they could have lost that whole sequence in the boat where they're waiting for it to float, because it doesn't add anything to the film it's just part it's just kind of passing time and it's just getting them to be out in a position where they're swimming in the water so they can be yeah. picked up by one of the little ships there are other ways of getting the characters into that position and it it just felt like a bit of a narrative dead end i wish nolan wouldn't write his own films this is the first he's only written three of his films on his own Mm. Mm. Uh, sticks directing but having said that I mean I also admire the fact that he got a film made about Dunkirk well there's that I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's that's the thing that I really take away from this is that Nolan can kind of do whatever he wants because they just give him money to make films about anything and mm. he's found a way for them to make money a film about Dunkirk in this day and age made 190 million dollars at the US box office with no stars yeah, and I think that's a that's a, a brilliant achievement because his name now carries so much weight as a as a craftsman and as someone who is able to tell complex stories in a very engaging way. He's understood that you can't have characters just spouting exposition at each other all the time, as it does in some of his other movies, because dialogue is pared back so much in this film. You can't have massive epic length things because this movie is an hour shorter than Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It's it clips by them and it feels like oh. an hour a quarter. Yeah, it does like, definitely like feel yeah. short. That's a, that's a strength. Why did it? Not, oh, it did with. I was say, why is it with the editing Oscar? It did. Yeah. Well, quite right too. Yeah, I still think um, I, I, I I possibly took against it, but I definitely don't think that it's um, there isn't there is an air of high seriousness with Christopher Nolan. He's a uh, an intelligent, uh, softly spoken man who tend, generally tends to go for prestige projects. Um, Christopher Priest is um, uh, very amusing on Nolan because he's um, online somewhere talking about um, what happens with the filming of The Prestige and uh, how The Prestige was optioned by a major studio and then this upstart called Christopher Nolan 
um, biked around a script and said, please read this before you make any decisions. Christopher Priest went, all right, I'll go with you then. And then watched his story be hacked to pieces hmm. and uh, an entire strand be removed from it. Yes. So um, I'd forgotten that the prestige started out as a Christopher Priest. I thought the prestige was excellent. <laughs> Um, he, well, yeah, it's it's got a. Um, I like the Prestige, but it's not the Christopher Priest book. It's well, no, it's gone. Been, yeah, if you want to read the book, read the book. Uh, you know, it's it had to be an adaptation. So and I, I th- think film of the year Logan. I don't. I definitely okay. don't think. I definitely don't think Dunkirk. Okay, um, I mean Logan. I, I mean, you know, it's think, it's in the ten. So what about? Uh, well, there's a few that have. Actually, there's a few of both of yours that we haven't got to because I haven't finished the rest yet. Hmm. But I'll go through my nominations. I'll just rattle through these quickly. Um, best director would be Christopher Nolan. <laughs> also nominated Paul Thomas Anderson, Darren Aronofsky, Jordan Peele, and Nacho Vigalondo. Mm. Best actor, Daniel Day-Lewis. Also Hugh, okay. ja- Hugh Jackman, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out. James McAvoy for Split. Oh. Uh, which we'll get onto in a bit. And Kamel Nanjiani for The Big Sick. Best actress, Anne Hathaway. Also Isabelle Huppert for Elle. Was that 2017? Yeah, had a late release in the UK. L was amazing. I know you liked it very much. The other thing was, uh, was it you who was always bending my ear about The Handmaiden? Yes. That was a 2017 film as well, because again, it had a very late release, and I saw it and I wasn't very impressed. It's a very odd film, that. Um, uh, Again, it felt like this is kind of a basic noir story, but very, very beautifully produced. But ultimately, it's not that much. Yeah, pretty to look at. Oh, yeah, gorgeous. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. It's been transplanted from a British novel uh, called Fingersmith, Fingersmith isn't it? Yeah. And I thought, this, yeah, it's like, I want to see more Korean films based on British novels. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, I like seeing what people elsewhere in the world think of us. I want to see Werner Herzog make a film based in Britain. I want to know what he thinks. Werner Herzog's Darkest Hour? That was when he had to eat that shoe. Oh, yeah, that's true. That was a fairly disagreeable experience. Um, so Isabella Pair, Francis McDormand, Vicky Creeps for Phantom Threads and Margot Robbie. Best supporting actor was Mark Rylance for Dunkirk. No. Yeah, well, up yours. Um, <laughs> and also Robert Carlyle for Trainspotting 2, Stephen Merchant, Patrick Stewart, and Jason Sudeikis. Uh, best supporting actress, Alison Janney, also Holly Hunter, Daphne Keane, Leslie Manville, and Kristen Wiig for Mother. Mm. Uh, best, uh, best original screenplay is Colossal also The Big Sick Get Out I Talking Fact and Thread and adapted screenplay is Death of Stalin also L Logan Trainspotting 2 and War for the Planet of the Apes because I was running out of films <laughs> <laughs> but War for the Planet of the Apes is really good so um, Atomic Blonde mm. you saw that didn't you? yeah it's, it's very flashy um, uh, but I saw Mad Max Fury Road so I saw the yeah um, I liked I like sort of eighties set stuff, eighties Berlin spy stuff. Yeah, I like the it's very self conscious. I like the action scene that was all of the frames in one take, and it just went on and yeah, on. Yeah, well, on. A stairwell. Thank you. Yeah, a stairwell, and then they're fighting up in the room, and then they're fighting back down the stairwell, and then they go out to the street, and it turns into a car chase, and it's still one shot. <laughs> yeah, I'm here to tell you this film's been made before. It's called Haywire by Steven Soderbergh, I've and it's it. much better. That's yeah, all right. Um, Battle of the Sexes. That was quite good. Beauty and the Beast. Horrible. Uh, horrible, horrible. The Belko Experiment. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? It's not as good as it should have been. It's not as good as I sold it to you as at the beginning of last year. Because <laughs> I, I watched it and 
I, I, I sort of, because it, it cropped up on, it ended up virtually going straight to Netflix, I think. Yeah, a very small release in the UK. And I sat there, watched it, turned it off, and was really, really dissatisfied with it. And I can't quite put my finger on why, except I think that it just, it just turns into a film with loads of people running around pointing guns at each other. And that seems to be less effective than the original premise. It, it felt like it was over too quickly. Mm. Um, it really felt like it was like gearing up for the third act, and then there's like literally Actually, five that, minutes later. You do get towards the end of the film, and there's suddenly a cull of characters incredibly quickly, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. No, it didn't. Not as good as it should have been. Yeah, you're looking confused, Anthony. Do you know what we're talking about? I know that I know the name, and that's it. Um, some people are in an office block in um, Bulgaria or somewhere, and then all the shutters come down and they're told to kill each other. Basically, a, vo- a voice yeah. comes over the tannoy and says, "In the next, after the next thirty minutes, ten people must be dead," and they're all just office workers. God, it sounds like Lehman Brothers. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing: is it? Well, it's cheaper than a redundancy package, isn't it? It could have. It starts out looking like it's going to be some satire on. Office, you know, it's office politics to the extreme. So it's battle royale in an office block. Yeah, but somehow it fumbles. It's yeah, and it's, it just it's you just come away. That's a good premise, though. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. As a, yeah, as a pitch, it's great, but it doesn't carry it off, unfortunately. Um, Bushwick is something else that went straight to Netflix um, for a long time. It was in my bottom five. It's um, it's an action movie about civil war breaking out on the streets of Brooklyn. And it just can't decide what it's trying to be. There's, it's structured as a series of very long takes. And I thought, why not just have the whole movie be one long take? Hmm. Because, I mean, they're cheating it all the way through. There's lots of digital edits, which is fine, obviously. But then there's sort of like a hard cut to, like, two minutes later, they're leaving the building. I thought, no, just, just have <laughs> yeah. something happen in that bit and do the whole thing as one long take. And I just felt... You know, that's that's kind of the only thing about the movie that's really interesting, and you fumbled it, so you've just shot yourself in the foot. When you say civil war on the streets of Brooklyn, do you mean a literal civil war? Or civil oh yeah, disturbed? like okay. like half of America's going to break off, and suddenly this this whole geopolitical situation has changed in the time it takes to travel like five stops in the subway. You see, because the the, the two main characters walk out and they're walking through the, the, the concourse of the station and then suddenly a guy runs down the stairs on fire and he <laughs> right. runs past them on fire and they, they go look out in the street and there's like bangs and crashes and explosions and gunfire and, and once someone gets blown up and, and this is all done in one take and they're thinking this is going well hmm. this is interesting and then at five minutes later there's a hard cut and it cuts to something else and yeah. you thought, no, See, again, it, ironically, for another film that went straight to Netflix, it sounds like the Belco experience. It sounds like a very intriguing premise that it got fumbled. Yeah. Like, like Warfare on the Streets of New York, shot in one continuous 90-minute... Uh, well, one continuous 90-minute shot. Hmm. Not a continuous take, because that's too hard. Um, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, really coy. What is that about? It's about... A, it's set in the 80s in, in Italy, about a romance between a 17-year-old kid and his father's 23-year-old research assistant, and, right. and they're, they're both men, and I thought, well, you know, in principle this is fine, but it's so coy and so self-consciously artistic, and I just thought, I just, I just want to see it going in, 
What? What? I get that correctly. I don't get the sense of any passion or chemistry between these two. I mean, you really have to like try harder to convince me that you're that you're obsessed with each other. I thought. You know, Brokeback Mountain was over a decade ago, and yeah. that mm. it wasn't really explicit. I mean, there's mm. a lot of you know rough and tumble, but that really conveyed the the sense of their relationship. And here it's yeah, it's you know it's yeah they can't be together, but it turns out the dad's fine with it because he had a, a gay relationship when he was a kid, and, and you know it's fine, and that's it. And it's just is that all? I mean, is that it? You can tell this movie was written by a ninety year old. Was it? It's James Ivory. Oh, right. Who won the Oscar. He's 89. This is an Italian film? No, it's an American film, but it's shot in Italy. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Oh. Timothée Chalamet, who plays the lead, is not a fantastic actor. That's a very strange uh, late career move from James Ivory. I wouldn't say so. I mean, it's not a military adaptation. It's an acclaimed novel. Right. It's a, it's a more recent novel than most of the stuff he's done, but it's not that much of a stretch. Okay. Um, Army Hammer was good as the older guy. He, he's like the Lone Ranger. He's done a lot of like ropey blockbusters, but he's actually quite good in this. So I thought maybe he's got a career as like the handsome guy in stuff in like in like indie films, more character based stuff mm-hmm. rather than like, a sleeping man. Um, Coco, I did not like Coco. Um, oh, that's a pity because I was going to recommend that to my my niece. Um, I, it turns out I have a fundamental problem with the concept of the Day of the Dead. Ah. <laughs> um, I think that it's immoral to try and push that kind of philosophy on mm, children. Mm, mm, I know um, what you mean. It's very weirdly Catholic in a way that I think is fairly toxic. Sorry, Mexicans listening, but your traditions seem weird to, <laughs> to, 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 yeah. to this particular form. Yeah, spectre and, and have the skeleton imagery, but I know what you mean. Um, Despicable Me 3. Didn't say it. Yeah. It's, it's it's th- yeah, that's it. The disaster artist I quite like, and I don't want to talk about it anymore because it turns out James Franco is a disgusting creep. I don't like James Franco. I've never liked James Franco. He's a Spider-Man film, so yeah, let's pass. Uh, the Discovery I recommended last year. It's that's not very good. <laughs> uh, a scientist played by Robert. The Redford. Discovery. Oh, yeah. oh yes, I know this one. Yeah, Robert Redford discovers life after death, and yeah. it turns out it's kind of not really about that, and it's just like a, mm. a noodling mumblecore thing. Mm. Um, L. Al? L. Oh. <laughs> Al? Is there an alphabetical order? <laughs> L. Yeah, I, I quite liked L. Um, it was a bit hard work, I thought, but it was, a, it was a film that sort of lingered. I liked the fact that it was a bit of a change of pace from Paul Verhoeven. I liked that he actually got a bit of a claim for it for a change. Mm. Um, it, was, it was interesting, but I thought it was it's interesting more than engaging. I felt I got more out of it thinking about it later than actually mm. watching it. A bit like The Exorcist. Like the ideas that it raises are more engaging than the actual movie. Yeah, that's French cinema for you. I went to see uh, an Isabelle Huppert um, um, film with her in attendance at, um, I think it was something like the Beer Vial, a Curzon uh, cinema thing, right at the start of last year. And in freezing January, and it wasn't L that was showing. It was a film I can't remember the name of now, which was very, um, which was a very young filmmaker. It was very worthy, and frankly, it was rather boring. And there was a palpable sense in the room uh, because there was a poster of L outside the cinema as you were going in. There was a sense in the room. I really wish I was watching a bit of Paul Verhoeven uh, messing with your mind. 
uh, craziness rather than this rather slightly C-grade uh, movie. I thought Elle was... Um, I love Isabelle Huppert. And when you're in a room with her and she locks eyes with you from the stage, um, my God, that woman has got an aura coming off her. Um, she was very um, unglamorous. She was wrapped up in scarves and, and hats and being very French. And, uh, um, but but she, she was just, for some reason, she was catching my eye. I don't know why. I, <laughs> I mean, I felt like I was being incinerated by, uh, by this woman. And, um, and I, I, I love the films, particularly The, um, the Pianist. Um, which is an extraordinary piano teacher. Is it? Well, there's, there's one called the pianist, or the or... yeah, it's about the Holocaust. Oh, it's the one with Adrian and what's Adrian his, Brody, that's the one. The, uh, this is the Hannah piano film. teacher. Yeah, which is an amazing, a shocking film. Um, um, and it, Isabel Huber was also in a film last year with Gerard Dippity Doodah, um, which again I can't remember the name. Welcome of. to New York. The one about no, that's not it, is it? It's the one where the son dies, and one of his last requests is that his estranged parents meet in the middle of. Of Death Valley or something like that, and and reconcile. That sounds like a laugh. It was <laughs> well, it's the usual uh, sort of um, Gallic humour. Lots of gitan and, and Gerard Dippity-Doodah was of course appearing in lots of photos at the time with him, frankly placing his hands in inappropriate positions on oh. women's bodies. So um, L, I thought was was um, pro- I thought it was better than you probably thought it was. Um, I liked the way that it really messed with. Um, the expectations of um, what a woman would do after suffering a, uh, a horrible piece of abuse that she does right at the start. Mm. Um, but not, not a film I'd be watching a lot, I have to say. Uh, Free Fire, which is the new um, Ben Wheatley film, which I thought was a bit of a... Yes, that passed by. Uh, Ghost in the Shell. Ah, oh, Chris, did you manage to see Ghost in the Shell? No, again, by the time... This was the one that everyone was accusing of being racist. And the whitewashing, whitewashing of the casting, yeah. yeah. It is a little bit racist. It's, unfortunately, a um, based on an old anime, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. been relentlessly strip-mined since that, that came out. So when you watch this, you went, yeah, I've seen this all before, <laughs> literally a hundred times before. The cityscape is very Blade Runner-esque, a little bit, bit more colourful. Um, Scarlett Johansson is playing a ghost in the shell. So again, she's doing a slightly vacant, absence, absent performance. And then being very kick-ass in various um, action shots. Um, the plot doesn't go anywhere that you haven't seen a hundred times before. And the, the big bad at the end is very, very predictable. Um, I don't think it's the colossal misfire that most people have painted out to be. It's definitely worth a watch. It's but a financial misfire. So yeah. It's, it's a yeah. Flop. I just found it, it, it had all this potential to be interesting and all these potential... Uh, avenues that it could go and it was just so boring I was yeah. so bored yeah I, I liked the eye candy um, and, uh, uh, but I know what you mean yeah well some of us like shiny things don't we <laughs> um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 I don't know I was a bit lukewarm about this one oh. yeah I kind of got to the and again sorry kind of spoilers for the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 I got to the point when he goes, that's why I gave your mum cancer when she died. And it's <laughs> like, that's a really stupid thing to say to the guy that can potentially undermine your plan. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I like spending time with those characters. Yes. I, I, right up to that point, I'd, I'd enjoyed it. It was just that particular moment. It's just like, really? <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed it generally. Um, I think maybe James Gunn is a better director than writer. 
given that he wrote the Belko experiment. Yes, he did, didn't he? Which surprised me to find yeah, that. Yeah, apparently it was just something that he had kicking around in the drawer and then got into the galaxy and matter. Oh, do you, do you have anything, anything that you want to, anything that you've not made? Oh, yeah, this. Do you want it? Okay. Yes, please. Oh, some money? Okay, thanks. Um, the handmaiden, we've already gone through that. It... Missed it. Yeah, um, missed it and shouldn't have done it. It's, you know, it's very mainstream horror movie, but it's a very good example of a safe mainstream studio horror movie. And let me just say, in passing, my niece, 16, 15 years old, went to see it and then went back to see it three times and absolutely raved about it and has got into horror big hmm. time off the back of it. Excellent. Yeah, so there is a virtue to it. Uh, give her uh, Clive Barker's Books of Blood to read. Ooh. Uh, Jigsaw. I love the Saw, <laughs> I love the Saw movies. I'm completely on the that. I do think they're great. Um, I like Jigsaw. I mean, it's exactly what you think it's going to be. It's people caught in horrible traps and having to chop their arms and legs off. <laughs> You're and such a people person. Life I know. Yeah. Um, Jim and Andy the Great Beyond, this is something that cropped up on Netflix. It's um, a documentary about the making of Man in the Moon, the Jim Carrey film about Oh, Andy right, Calvin. yeah, I saw a trailer for this. And a lot of the behind-the-scenes footage shows Jim Carrey remaining in character the entire time. And being a bit of an idiot. And being quite weird. Mm. And he's also um, interviewed now and he talks about spirituality and all that kind of. I don't want to. I don't want to crap on it too much and call it you know, hippy hippy drippy nonsense because it doesn't need to be. But Jim Carrey is kind of weird these days. Well, he's been through yeah. a bit of a tough time, and he's he's turned to art. Uh, I, I've got a lot of time for Jim Carrey, and I'd like to see him in more interesting stuff. Yeah. What was that weird superhero thing that he did? Mister Popper's Penguins. No. no. <laughs> No, 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 no. That's the one. Yeah, he was good in that. But that's that was a while ago. No? Yeah, it was a while ago, yeah. and I'd like to see him do more stuff. For... Uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Um, and again, something that my niece went to see and uh, yeah, uh, raved it's about. Really good. And uh, much to my annoyance, because I'm not a massive fan of Karen Gillan and her ascent into the top tier mm-hmm. of, of Hollywood blockbusters is a mystery to me. But actually, she's very good. Um, uh, but the person who's really good at this is The Rock, who's a fantastic family film presence. Yeah, um, it's it's a really well written script. I mean, it's it's so depressingly rare to see a big sort of blockbuster mm. movie that has a really good script yes. that actually is interested in the characters and takes them on a journey and they develop over the course of the story. You know, the way they're supposed to yeah, in anything yeah. ever, and has a central idea that it develops really well. Reese Darby is in it, which is always a big plus. It, I really thought it was great. I'm glad it was a huge hit. And Jack Black's good. Jack Black, Jack Black played a teenage girl. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Even Kevin Hart manages to not be annoying. <laughs> yeah. It's like, everything works. Obviously, they'll do a sequel that doesn't work properly. But I think, for the time being, it's a real gem. Kong Skull Island. Yeah, yeah. loved it. Good fun. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. I like my monkey mayhem. I mean, yeah, I understand he's going to be fighting Godzilla next. Bring it on. I'm not sure that we need him. I mean, I saw King Kong Lives recently. and um, Oh, yes. That's, yes. That's not very good. <laughs> Can I say also that the, the script of uh, Skull Island leaves a lot to be desired? There are about three characters in that film that. Um, like, do you remember the Chinese girl in it who has about two lines? Oh, Can yes. Do you remember yeah. that she's on that trip? No, I no. did when you mentioned her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is Tom Hiddleston doing in this film? 
paycheck. But he, it's it's crazy. Um, but it's all about the imagery in that film. Mm. And um, I I went in with medium level expectations. I want popcorn fun, and I got it. It's a big blockbuster movie that has a visual reference to Cannibal Holocaust. Yes, I heard that. I haven't seen Cannibal Holocaust. And I don't it's where it, someone but... gets speared, and the spit, uh, and it goes in their mouth all the way through their body and out of their bottom. Oh right. Because that happens to someone in Cannibal Holocaust. That's how they get. Um, tortured they're just sort of put on top of a spear well there's some wonderful moments of uh, of uh, unexpected um character yeah. deaths the one i really liked was when kong has the girl in his in his fist and he shoves his fist down another monster's throat oh, yes, yes. and there, brings it back out again uh there was a, a little baby in the screen that i saw it in what the baby apparently got quite upset at the sight of one character being torn limb from limb <laughs> and eating flying dinosaurs well i'll be a film fan for the rest of their life um I mean, so to their credit, the parents took the baby out straight away. The baby shouldn't have been watching a fucking King Kong film. Um, Ladybird. It's a load of gas. It's, it's nothing. There's no substance to it at all. It's like, oh, sometimes teenage girls have troubled relationships with their mothers. Mm. Yes, I know. I have no desire to see it. Is this the story of your life, Greta Gerwig? Because it's not as interesting as you think it is. So he wants to do a whole bunch of sequels about Ladybird's really? development. Yeah, I thought... There is, there is no market for that. Yeah. There is no market for that. Wow. It's, again, Sir Sharona needs to fire her agent. Mm. Ladybird is, a, is just a load of nothing. And I can say that because I had a lot of films in my top ten about women. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, you get a pass. Uh, the Lego Batman movie. Not funny. Oh, it okay. really misses Lord Miller, who wrote directed the Lego movie, and they had no involvement with this at all, and it really shows. It's really bland and not funny, and it's about how Batman needs to have a, a family more. God Almighty, oh this is hmm. so this is so lame. It really it embodies the word lame. But it's the Lego Batman movie. What did you expect? I expected it to be, have the same kind of joyful anarchic humour as the Lego movie did, but it doesn't. It's really bland. But the USP of the Lego movie was that. It's good. And the USP of this is it's got Batman in it. Yeah, but now we're back down to, yeah, they are just about Lego. It's, yeah. We know and this then, is And then we had the third one, the Lego Ninjago movie, which no one even bothered to yeah, see. Yeah, that looked like, am I hallucinating this? It was a big Lego brand for the toys. Right. Which, well, great for the kids playing with it, but it doesn't mean it's a movie. No. Um, Logan Lucky. Ah, did you see it? Yes, I saw it. Why do you think it's on the yeah. bloody list? I was just spitballing, that's all. Chris, did you see Logan? No. Um, not a fan of this one. I thought um, this is a lot of actors just uh, giving a turn and numero uno top of the list is Daniel <laughs> Craig. Yes. Uh, who's, um, I don't know what he's doing, um, but he's obviously having a lot of fun nuking the James Bond image. Now, Steven Soderbergh, is, um, this was billed as um, Ocean's 9-11. And it's and it's um, uh, a sort of heist movie. Um, Kylo Ren's in it. Um, the reason you know it's a Steven Soderbergh movie is that uh, there's a moment in a bar quite early on, and two characters uh, come in wearing sort of red leather jackets, and they are the same two characters that are in the Ocean's Eleven movies. Those two, there's a you know the, the I think they might be brothers, but the one who one races a really big truck against a remote controlled really small truck in the oh, Ocean's Eleven. Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck. It's those two, yeah, and it's and exactly those two same characters walk into the bar, and then there's a big uh, fight scene. Ah. 
Um, I I thought it frankly didn't really work for me. I enjoyed it. I felt it was quite lightweight. Mm. Um, but it's it's Soderbergh's first film in a while, and I thought just easing yourself back into it. Yeah. And I mean, he's got another film coming out later this month already, um, which apparently is shot entirely on an iPhone. He's an odd fish, that guy, and um, he made the Ocean's Eleven films with his uh, rich mates in order to fund his experiments in indie cinema. Yeah. He got stiffed at Sundance, didn't he, by Redford, which put him off uh, filmmaking for a while. And then he's made some really odd choices. I, uh, he did The Girlfriend Experience. Yes. You heard that? No, I really didn't like that film. I thought that was nihilistic and... Um, Again, there was nobody in that that I remotely ever wanted to see again. Um, so yeah, this thing uh, again. It seems to me like he was. Uh, it was almost like I'm apologising for Ocean's Eleven and here are the real people. But then he got the actors to do a lot of really odd turns. I, I, I as a Friday night movie, I thought it was fun. I don't think it had too much depth to it. I don't think it was really. A I'd rather watch a Jason Statham movie. I think Jason Statham, Jason Statham as the Daniel Craig character would have been great fun because Jason Statham is a great comic actor. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely on board with that. That's that. That is the hill I will die on. Yes, yeah. Uh, Mindhorn. Ah, yes. Um, <laughs> I'd completely forgotten about that. Yes, I did see that. Um, I felt the idea was better than the execution. It wasn't funny Yeah, enough. it is. It, it's... It, it's an actor who used to be in basically the equivalent of Bergerac, isn't it? Yeah, but um, on the Isle of Man. Yeah. Is brought back to negotiate with a serial killer who will only talk to him. So it's a little Alan Partridge-y, um, and it's, I agree with you, it's not as uh, roll-around funny, as, um, it's not as broad as you might, might hope. And having said Alan partridge Steve Coogan is actually in it. Yeah, he is. Because he? his character was the supporting character in the Mindhorn TV show who then got his own long running spin off and is <laughs> yeah, now of course, like, a, yeah. like the big man on the big man in Douglas God this is a film that I completely wiped from my memory yeah see I'd make a list of these things um, it's fine yeah really I mean as they made a whole thing about it oh it's set on the Isle of Man and it's filmed on the Isle of Man and it's trying to show how lovely the Isle of Man is and I thought yeah it does look quite nice but mm. you know it's no Isle of Wight uh, Okja Ah, oh, I'm really annoyed I missed that film. Well, it's on Netflix, so... It's I know, I, it's, I want to... It immediately um, grabs me. It's um, Little Girl Falls in Love with a Genetically Engineered... Pig. Um, pig, basically. Um, that's, uh, that's been bred by an evil... Well, not evil, but kind of amoral... Indeed. ...food company run by Tilda Swinton and her twin, Tilda Swinton. And one might say, uncharitably, that it's not a million miles away from The Shape of Water. It's not a romance. Well, I mean, we're, we're getting towards The Shape of Water... Hmm. Um, yeah, it's made by Bong Joon-ho and John Ronson, which is a great double act. I thought it was fine. I thought that the film's message was kind of a bit mixed about, is this pro-vegetarian? Because it's, it doesn't feel like it is, because there's bits of it on. Is it, is it anti-industrial farming? I'm, I wasn't sure what it was going for. Oh, um, Jake Gyllenhaal has, has a great supporting role. Oh, really? He's kind of the celebrity spokesman for the company as... <laughs> Like a mix of um, Steve Irwin and Bear Grylls. <laughs> yeah. And he's really overacting, but in a way that makes sense in context. And worth so, seeing? Cool. Yeah, worth giving a go. Okay. Paddington 2? No, I, I haven't seen this, but I've heard everyone say it's an absolute modern masterpiece. It's, well, it's no Paddington 1. 
but it is very good, very entertaining, and Hugh Grant is fantastic. That's that's what I wanted. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is its correct title. Yeah. Not Salazar's Revenge, which is a terrible title, because we don't know who Salazar is or why he wants revenge. Um, I thought this was a fine conclusion to the Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> saga. Please don't make any more. Because it actually ends, it ends with the destruction of all... Ocean magic, of piracy, and water. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, all like all the all the magic of the ocean has now been destroyed at the, at the end of the movie, and they bring back Orlando Bloom, and they bring back Kira Knightley, and everything ends happily ever after. And Jack Sparrow gets a new ship, and he goes sails off. Da da da. That's the end now. Bye bye. Sorry. <laughs> but it's actually quite good. Harvey Bardem's the villain, and he's very sort of effective and spooky and villainy. It's fine. Really? Is there a young Jack Sparrow in it, which is a youth and um, Johnny Depp? Am I right in thinking that? I think so, but it's very brief. It's I think it's like there's a little flashback to it, but um, for the most part, it's it's pretty entertaining. It's the best one since the first one, but given that the intervening ones have been fairly awful, that's not saying much. But it's it's fine. Because in the year that uh, you've got Rachel in Blade Runner as CGI. um, Character and then, not lo- not much longer before that, you had uh, Peter Cushing raised from the dead. Oh. You we're about to have the spectacle of uh, Martin Scorsese using CGI to youth and Al Pacino and Rob De Niro for the Irishman. Yeah. So this is really getting up to um, uh, this is a done deal, folks. Um, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. People will need to license their yes, they will. Uh, That's going to happen sooner or later. But that will stop things from getting too out of hand too quickly. You bet Tom Cruise has already done it. Yeah. Actually, how do we know he's not dead already? I was going to say, that might, <laughs> that might explain the mummy. That was just the latest adventure right. of the Tom Cruise algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, did it feel like an algorithm. Uh, the Post. Missed it. Yeah, it's, it's like an hour and 130 minutes of Steven Spielberg real life story. It's fine. Um, Meryl Streep's in it, so she got an Oscar nomination because she worked this year. <gasps> the Shape of Water. Mm. It's it's like E. T. except Elliot is a grown woman who has sex with E. T. And that's literally the whole movie. Yeah. Um Chris, did you see the Shape of Water? No. Uh, never really sure how how I feel about sort of Del Toro and his mm. films. I I kinda of wax hot and cold on him, but no, it's not really <clears throat> Not really grabbed me, to be honest. Um, I got severe Amelie um, overtones from this film. I also went into it expecting it to be a massive uh, blubfest and to be much more emotionally affecting than um, than it turned out to be. I thought it was a bit of a botched film, actually. I think he botched the ending. Um, I, I like the little the explanation of, of the title. I quite liked that. Um, I was quite surprised to see Michael Shannon uh, turn up, which was uh, 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 nice to see him, except he then became um, just Mr. Evil. Um, oh, yeah, there's a subplot about him buying a car. Yeah, Yes, there is. Which has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, um, yeah so um, best film of the year? No. No. Spider-Man Homecoming. Missed it. Was it? Really? It's, it's actually really good. <laughs> My brother used to work with uh, the, the Spider-Man guy. Tom Holland. Yeah, and he's got some fun stories about Mr. He Holland. is the best Spider-Man. Uh, Split. I really like Split. It's it's M. Night Shyamalan really did make a comeback. <laughs> it's it's maybe not the most sensitive film about mental illness, 
because it's about someone who has like 20 personalities and he physically changes with each one and there's like there's the the evil secret personality who's like a monster guy um but it's it's a really good like stripped down b movie and james mcavoy is absolutely terrific playing like a dozen different characters there's a scene where he flips between three or four of them in a single shot. Um, you should do that with Numi Rapace then. Um, but I would recommend that. Star Wars The Last Jedi, keep it brief. <clears throat> Ed, anyone. Okay, <laughs> off to you Chris. I, thought, I loved it. Uh, I okay. Got, <laughs> I got to the sequence where R2-D2 shows Mark Hamill the hologram of young uh, oh, yeah. Carrie Fisher... And I just had a real emotion. I think it was part of the fact that there's obviously there's old Mark Hamill remembering when he was young looking at... And I had exactly the same experience. It's me looking at the screen remembering when I was young seeing young Carrie Fisher. And from that point on, the film could do no wrong. Anthony. Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) We are running out of time and I'm running out of phone battery. Right. Well, um, I enjoyed it whilst I was watching it. And the further away I get from it, the more I think it's a gigantic misfire. Um, Luke skyping in at the end with the, the main fight and then conking out. Um, met Leia doing Mary Poppins. I didn't like at all. Um, and I don't find the, um, the the current crop of characters as engaging as the, the originals. So um, 10 out of 10 for enthusiasm from Mr. Ryan Johnson. Good luck to him. But this was the film that made me think Star Wars is no longer for me. I liked it. I liked that it went off in different directions. It didn't follow the... Um the expectations of... That's what Blade Runner did, though. Yeah, but this actually did it in a way that I cared, <laughs> uh, with characters who actually felt like people and not people just spouting dialogue and talking a load of bollocks about a load of inevitable. Um I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but I did enjoy this. Do you, uh, he cited under the skin for the moment where uh, Ray sees the long, great big mirror line of, of her herself. Well, he's a man of taste. He certainly is. I did like that bit. Trainspotting 2. I actually quite like that. I'm not a huge fan of Trainspotting, but this was a surprisingly effective uh, reprise of the characters in a way that actually felt earned and made sense. Yeah, I'm, I find Trainspotting a really difficult watch, mm. and uh, it's not one I want to rewatch a lot at all. There's nothing in Trainspotting 2, in my opinion, that's as shocking as things like the baby and the no. heron and anything like that. But again, I did like this. Um, Thor Ragnarok way too pleased with itself I enjoyed it I thought it was a good laugh a bit of fluff three billboards outside Epic Missouri um, tough watch um, good performance from from well everyone frankly it's a little bit um, cliched with the depiction of um, everyone's horrible racist in, in uh, everyone's a little bit racist in, in well psychologically speaking um I, yeah, again, wouldn't be running to see it again. Um, and I, I noticed that the whole three billboards thing has become a bit of a meme. Um, I've, I feel a bit underwhelmed. Um, there were some tonal shifts in it that felt really mm. hurting my neck. I can see what it's getting at. I quite like Martin McDonough's other stuff, but I just felt this wasn't, this wasn't quite there. I did like how the, um, the Sam Rockwell character was developed, where he goes from being a racist and he actually sort of does develop and becomes more aware but it's not overtly spelled out and people seem to have a bit of a problem with that because oh he goes is it he's a racist he gets away with it well no he doesn't he becomes more aware of his attitudes in his environment wonder woman yeah i liked it i liked it too 
way, way, way overrated. It's one scene, the no man's land scene, which is fine, and then she kicks ass and goes bananas, which is brilliant and I love. The rest of it's way, just a generic superhero film. But it's actually done well with, yes. with effort and with, yes. with an underlying philosophy that actually... It's not Batman counts. versus Superman, absolutely. No. Um, it was refreshing to see something done with a bit of honesty and sincerity. And a straight-down-the-line superhero who's not angsty and mm. saves people. Hallelujah. Yeah. So, that's all the movies done. Um, uh, we don't have time to do any previews for next year, and I don't have a list apart from Johnny English 3. And, um, <laughs> Hang on a minute. Halloween you, did you not go and see uh, Boo to uh, Medea Halloween? That's just outrageous. What about Fifty Shades of whatever? Fifty Shades of Shit? Yeah. No, no. You didn't see the Emoji movie? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Frown face. <laughs> okay, well, I'll see you both next year and uh, probably in the intervening time. And you, listener, you have a lot of catching up to do. Thanks to Anthony and Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts with almost 50 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. And we're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo. However, until next time, continue watching good films. been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.